Good morning again, Grace Mark chapter 3. And beginning in verse 7, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We may not get the warm fuzzies when we read these verses. We may not be blown away by some new insight. But we should. Yeah, it seems like a recap of what we've already seen in Mark's gospel. And if you've been a Christian for a while and you're honest you might admit that you're not exactly flabbergasted by these verses. I read them this week and wasn't exactly blown away by them. I'm just being honest. Have you ever opened up God's Word and felt kind of blah, kind of ho-hum, like what you were reading didn't get you pumped up and excited and passionate I am going to assume that you, like me, have had that happen more times than you want to admit. Well, that was me with these verses this week. I'm just being honest. Isn't that what you're looking for in a preacher? Honesty? So yeah, that was me this week. And that's why God inspired David to write words like this in Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. God knew that we would struggle. And so he gave us these kinds of prayers to pray when we don't get goosebumps and when we don't get the warm fuzzies, when we read his word or when we hear the gospel. So if you're like me, you find yourself in that place where God's word is just kind of ho-hum, pray these verses. Incline my heart, Jesus. Open my eyes, Holy Spirit, and then just keep reading. Oh, if we would just keep reading, just keep reading and exposing yourself and your heart and your soul and your mind to God's word, and it will do its work, and it will have its way in your life. Now, I was originally going to break up the rest of chapter 3 into two sermons, even though it probably should be preached in, in one sermon because it's a unit that belongs together. But I decided I was going to do it in two sermons, but I just couldn't get past verses 7 and through 12, that little paragraph there. And I couldn't get past them, not because I was blown away by them, quite the opposite. It's because I wasn't blown away by this little paragraph that I decided to slow down our pace and look at it this week. So I sat with this paragraph this week and I thought, thought to myself, 
What is wrong with my heart that this little paragraph does not grip me like Romans chapter 8 verse 1 or 1 John 1.19 or Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 19. And so I just confronted my own heart this week and I sat with these 114 words. And I wanted to know what these seven verses would show me first about my sin and secondly about my Savior. So when you get stuck reading God's word, just ask him to show you those two things. Say, show me my sin and show me my Savior. Or as we say around here, the law and the gospel. That's what I was looking for in these verses this week. And what these verses say about Jesus start to get repeated in the gospels, and we may be tempted to approach them the way we might the introduction to a series that we're binge-watching on Netflix. Did you know they have this option now on Netflix where you can skip the intro and skip the credits and just jump right into the first scene? Did you know that? You can push a button and it will skip the theme song and drop you right into the opening scene. So if you're tired of hearing the theme song over again because you've been binge-watching episodes of something and you already know all the actors and everything, and you just want to skip it all, you can do that now. You just push the little button. And we may be attempted to approach this little paragraph in Mark's gospel today, verses 7 through 12, the same way. We may see this paragraph and just want to hit skip intro and move on. Yes, we have encountered what happens in verses 7 through 12 in Mark's gospel already. We've already seen Jesus cast out demons Back in chapter 1, a demon-possessed man entered the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. And the demon-possessed man began revealing the identity of Jesus. So Jesus told him to shut up, and then Jesus cast the demon out of the man. Then immediately after this, Jesus went to Peter's house, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And then great crowds showed up at Peter's house, and they brought all these six people and demon-possessed people to Jesus, and he healed them. And then once again, Mark tells us that Jesus would not let the demon speak and reveal his identity. And then Mark tells us that Jesus had to get away and pray and commune and be with his heavenly father. But then the crowds began looking for Jesus. So he began going throughout all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues. And once again, Mark tells us that Jesus was casting out more demons. Then we saw that Jesus healed a leper and told him to keep quiet about the healing. And then Jesus healed the paralytic who was let down through the ceiling by his friends. And then two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue. So there's been this ongoing story in Mark's gospel of great crowds, healing people, casting out demons, and keeping the identity of Jesus under wraps. So why does Mark repeat himself yet again in the verses that we're looking at today? Why another description of great crowds, the healings, the exorcisms, and the need to keep the true identity of Jesus a secret? I mean, do we really need to hear this again? We're only seven verses into chapter 3, Mark. Why are you telling us again what you have already told us over and over and over again? Well, in this paragraph... We have just seven very familiar verses that barely draw any interest out of us if we're honest. So let's be honest. Do these words just kind of roll past you 
They are so familiar that they barely draw any interest out of us, yet alone any awe. Honestly, how many of us read these verses and we're totally flabbergasted? I'll admit it. I can read these verses and they're so familiar to me that I'm not awestruck by them. At least at first glance. But if I pray and I ask for help from the Holy Spirit and I sit and I meditate and I think about what is really happening here, then maybe I will be awestruck. In chapter 3, Mark could have just jumped from verse 6 to verse 13 because nothing happens in verses 7 through 12 that's exactly new or moves the story along in some unique fashion. It's just vintage Mark. That's all it is. It's vintage Mark. There's crowds, there's healings, there's demons, and there's silencing people. And yet Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has included these six verses right here in his story. I think Mark would caution us as we read this section. I think underneath it all, Mark is saying to us, don't lose your awe. That's why Mark is writing his gospel to these believers that are in Rome. He doesn't want them to lose their awe of God. He's writing to them an account of Jesus' life and ministry so that they will not lose their awe of God. He doesn't want the gospel to become old hat for them. And I don't want that for any of us here either. Every single week, my goal is to give you back your awe of God. And I hope that as we look at what might be a familiar passage to you, a repetitive paragraph, I hope that once again you get your awe back. We've already encountered Jesus casting out demons. We've already seen him heal people. We've already heard about how the crowds were following him everywhere he went. What we don't want to do is think like this. Been there, done that. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus heals people. Heard about that already? Dilly dilly. No, we don't want to, what we want to do is to be once again flabbergasted at who Jesus is and what he is doing in these miracles, even if we've already heard about what he can do, even if we already know what he can do. As Jared Wilson says, miraculous events in the Bible are God putting an exclamation point where he normally puts a period. God is putting an exclamation point here in this paragraph, and Mark wants us to see it. So look again with fresh eyes at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus cannot go anywhere or do anything without being recognized, without being followed by a great crowd. This was like 
the paparazzi on steroids. To go to Starbucks and get an iced coffee, Jesus has to wear a hat and sunglasses. Everywhere he went, crowds were there. And you can see on this map that people were following Jesus from all over. From Tyre and Sidon all the way up in the north. From all over Galilee and the Decapolis. From all the way down south in Judea and Idumea or it used to be Edom. Jesus was attracting all kinds of peoples, both Jews and Gentiles, which was pretty remarkable considering the hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. They hated one another. And yet this man, this rabbi, is drawing them all together. There were so many people that they were flooding the village of Capernaum that they were beginning to crush Jesus. So he told his disciples, got to get me a boat, get me out of here. Word had spread all over Israel about how Jesus healed people and cast out demons so that people were coming and pushing and shoving and trying to do anything just so they could reach out and touch Jesus. I mean, imagine they're all squished together, pushing and shoving, kind of like a mosh pit at a concert. It's just this great crowd moving, shoving, pushing. And when demon-possessed people saw Jesus in the middle of this giant crowd, Mark tells us in verse 11 that they'd fall down on the ground and cry out, You are the Son of God. Now, you have to imagine this. People are clamoring around Jesus. They're pushing. They're shoving. And then a demon-possessed man just falls on the ground and screams out in a demonic voice, You are the Son of God. That's my best demonic voice right there. And when the demon said this, Jesus strictly warned them not to reveal his identity. Now, why? Why did Jesus tell them to be quiet? Because Jesus knew that people would want him to overthrow Rome and set up the Davidic kingdom and restore Israel. So Jesus told them to be quiet. Now, remember, Jesus did not want his miracles to detract from his message and his mission. I told you this back in chapter 1. It's what scholars call the messianic secret. Jesus knows people's hearts. He knows that they will want to crown him as king and overthrow Rome if they figure out that he is the promised Messiah. So Jesus did not want his miracles to detract from his message or his mission. He didn't come to just do miracles. He didn't come to just heal people. He didn't come to just cast out demons. He came with a message, which is the good news of the gospel, that God loves sinners. And he came with a mission, which was the cross, the proof that God loves sinners and will do something about their dead spiritual condition. Jesus doesn't want his miracles to distract, detract from his message or his mission. So these demon-possessed people that approach Jesus are really just Satan provoking Jesus. Back in chapter 1, Satan and Jesus did battle for 40 days in the wilderness. And as we see here, the devil has no desire to stop his relentless barrage of attacks on Jesus to try to stop him, stop his mission of living and dying for sinners. Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome and be king. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He came to go to the cross, not to set up a kingdom. But you know that already, don't you? I know that. 
right? The problem when we read reoccurring stories like this is that our familiarity with these healings and these exorcisms can cause us to not be shocked by this. I mean, these are crazy things that are happening here. This is why large crowds start following Jesus. The typical stereotypes that we see pictures of and we think of in our head and we see them in our children's Bibles are are of Jesus being surrounded by lambs, little cute fluffy white lambs and children. And he's in the calm Galilean countryside. Those are skewed caricatures of Mark's description of Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. The arrival of Jesus being uh, jostled by the crowds and tossed back and forth and being hassled by reporters and being hassled by the paparazzi, that's more appropriate than the Jesus in the hillside with lambs and little children. Picture people all squished together here, trying to get to Jesus to touch him. Picture the paparazzi taking pictures and, and asking him questions so they can put it on TMZ. These people are in awe of what Jesus is doing. Jesus was so popular that he could not even enter into any village or town without causing a traffic jam. Shouldn't he seize this opportunity? Shouldn't he seize this ministry opportunity? It's ministry, Jesus. Why not make a name for yourself in the name of ministry, of course, Well, Jesus will have none of that. Mark tells us in verse 9 that he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Jesus not only wanted to get away from being mobbed, he also wanted to get away because, one, he's about to handpick the 12 disciples, which we'll look at next week, and two, because Jesus didn't come to win a popularity contest. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with being a celebrity pastor, celebrity rabbi. His way is the way of the invisible, the mundane, the ministry things that happen behind the scenes when when no one's looking and when the paparazzi are not taking pictures. Jesus doesn't need a hashtag to do ministry. It's not his way. Jesus did not take pictures of himself casting out demons and then post it on social media with the hashtag exorcisms with Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the kingdom. Mark mentions these crowds over 30 times in his gospel. Jesus is always surrounded. If Jesus wanted to capitalize on this opportunity, he had plenty of chances. That's not the way of Jesus. Zach Eswine tells us that Jesus is fame shy. Jesus seemed drawn not to the spotlight, but from it. Disciples and friends had to search. He wasn't tweeting. His blog lay unattended. His email responses were not immediate. Where they often found him was alone and in desolate places praying. In fact, it seems that just when Jesus was at the right place at the right time and the opportunity to advance his work through greater celebrity called out to him, he intentionally allowed the call to go to voicemail and disappeared for a while. Listen, if we're going to follow Jesus, 
we have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is not interested in helping us make a name for ourselves. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is not interested in helping us make a name for Grace Baptist Church in this city. Jesus is not interested in making us the most popular, most talked about church in this city with crowds gathering each week. That could happen. And yes, we want to reach as many people as we can on the Central Coast with the gospel. But that's not our goal. Numbers are not a litmus test for faithfulness. Jesus isn't interested in making us the most popular church in town. Jesus is only interested in his glory, his kingdom. He's only interested in helping us make disciples, making disciples who glorify and enjoy God. Jesus does not come alongside us to help us build our own little kingdoms. Like, we need a little bit of help, Jesus. We can't build our kingdoms on our own, but if you can help us out because you got the power, come help us out build our kingdom. You're a carpenter, right? That very idea makes Jesus throw up. It nauseates him. His way is not the way of numbers. His way is not the way of figures. His way is not the way of crowds. His way is the way of the invisible, the mundane, the ordinary, the behind the scenes when no one is looking, when no one's taking a picture. Jesus cares about people not winning a popularity contest. That's why he tells the unclean spirits in verse 12 to be quiet. He's not interested in starting a revolution. He is not like us. Now, we like to have our egos stroked, right? Let's be honest. We do, don't we? I'll admit it, I do. We like to have our egos stroked. We would love to have somebody publicly stroke our ego. We would not run from this fame stuff, this popularity stuff, would we? We would relish in it. That's how our sin is exposed in this passage because there's a contrast between us and Jesus. We would steer conversations so that they continue to be about us, not Jesus. He wants nothing to do with this. Remember what John says in his gospel in John 12? Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is where God's law exposes us. If we're honest, if we're honest, we love the glory of man. If we're honest, we love to be important. If we're honest, we want to be loved by people so bad that we will do anything for their approval. We're like Sally Field when she won the Best Actress Oscar in 1985 for her role in the movie Places in the Heart. When Robert Duvall handed her the Oscar, she said this in her speech, I wanted more than anything to have your respect and I can't deny the fact that you like me. Right now, you like me. Many of you have seen that. That's all of us in some way. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. The question is, why do we do this? 
Why do we live in the fear of man and live for other people's approval? Why do we love the glory of man? It's because we have lost our awe of God. That's why we sin. That's why we disobey God's word, disobey God's law. Paul Tripp says, disobedience is first an awe problem before it's a law problem. We have an awe problem. And that's why every week here at Grace, we want to give you your awe back. We all have an awe problem. Disobedience is first an awe problem before it's a law problem. But take heart, friends. The good news of the gospel comes and raises a banner over our selfishness, over our desire to be famous, over our desire to be known, over our desire to be liked and loved by everybody. Because of Jesus, we do not have to work hard for other people's approval and other people's acceptance. We can just let that go. On the cross, Jesus took our desire for fame. He took our desire to be known and loved by many. He took our desire to be somebody and do something revolutionary. And he gave us his humility. He gave us his meekness. He gave us his trust and rest in the Father. He exchanged his humility for our pride. Don't let that wonderful truth cease to astound you. He took our desires for fame and popularity and meaning and being loved by everyone and he took it to the cross. He took our desire for glory to the cross. He took our lack of being astonished when we read his word and he bore that on the cross. He took our sin of loving the glory of man more than the glory of God to the cross. Be awestruck by that today. Don't lose your awe. Mark is writing his gospel and telling us again that Jesus heals people and casts out demons so that we will not lose our sense of awe and wonder. The original audience, these Roman Christians that Mark is writing to, they have heard stories about Jesus. Stories about Jesus had been circulating for some 30 years by the time Mark wrote his gospel. They knew Jesus healed people. They knew that Jesus cast out demons. So why does Mark tell them yet again in these verses about something that they already know and something they've already heard? The answer is because they had become too familiar with it all. They, like us, have been around church so long, they've heard all about Jesus, but they, like us, have just gotten too familiar with this incredible news that it doesn't astound them anymore. They've simply lost their awe of Jesus. That sense of wonder is gone. That sense of amazement is gone. And Mark wants them to read his gospel and have them see Jesus heal sick people and have them see Jesus cast out demons and then have them say, wow, did you see that? He just healed that little girl's fever. He just cast a demon out of that man. Dilly, dilly. That's how you're supposed to respond to Jesus. That's worship. And we can never hear enough of it. We can never hear the good news of the gospel too much. 
Nick Batzig said, when you tire of hearing the good news about what the Son of God has accomplished by taking the sins of his people on himself, by propitiating the wrath of God, by conquering the evil one, and by overcoming the world, you're in need of hearing it the most. If you're tired of hearing the same thing every week from this pulpit, then you are in need of hearing it the most. If you're tired of hearing the same thing about Jesus in the Gospels, then you're in need of hearing it the most. Yes, Mark knows our propensity to lose our awe and wonder of Jesus. Mark knows how easy it is for the things of God to become too familiar for the people of God. He knows that we can all get used to Jesus and not be awestruck by him anymore. And so Mark wants to pass that awe down to his readers by showing us Jesus in action. Mark knows that every moment of Jesus' ministry and every moment of our ministry is, to, is supposed to stir up and rekindle awe of God in the hearts of God's people. All ministry should do that. Every sermon should do that. Your family devotions are geared to that. Your discipleship of others and theirs of you should do that. All ministry should have as its goal awe of God, wonder, amazement. That's what Mark is aiming for in his gospel. Mark wants to give people their awe back. Ray Ortland said this in Acts, the book of Acts, they preached and awe came down. You can't put that in your worship order. 10 a.m., awe comes down. You can't plan this. You can't say, we're having revival. Awe of God will take place at 10 a.m. right after the offering. It doesn't work that way. You can't plan it. You can't structure it. The Spirit has to open your eyes to His beauty. You have to see Jesus in His beauty, see Him in His Word, see Him in the Gospel. You have to hear once again about Him taking the sins of His people upon Himself. You have to hear about Him propitiating or turning away the wrath of God. You have to hear about Him conquering the evil one and overcoming the world. Seriously, don't let the shock factor of this paragraph in Mark pass you by. Don't let your familiarity with this story cease to stun you. Jesus healed many people of various diseases. Jesus cast out many demons. That means that Jesus can do anything, right? He can touch someone and the sickness is gone. Poof, it's just gone like that. He can say a word and demons leave a person. He can do anything. Nothing, nothing is impossible for him. And Mark wants you to look at your life and see where you need Jesus to do something miraculous for you. Mark wants you to read this paragraph and to think, I need Jesus to do what he's doing there in my life right now. If Jesus can heal, if Jesus can heal people and set demon-possessed people free, then what in the world can he do for you today? Think about your life. What do you need Jesus to do for you today, right now? 
We know in our country we need Jesus, don't we? I don't know what the number was, but there was seven, eight, or nine cops killed in the line of duty this past week. We have the shooting in Florida. We still have an issue with racism in our country. There's sexual abuse and misconduct, not only happening in the secular workplace, but if you've read anything over the last month, it's rampant in churches. We need Jesus in this country. But let's make it personal. What about you? What do you need Jesus to do for you today? What is it? What's weighing you down today? What's stressing you out? What's keeping you up at night? What's breaking your heart this morning? What's breaking your heart? Your heart is just absolutely broken this morning. For these people here in Mark 3, they had diseases and demons. I'll take the flu any day over a demon. And Jesus healed them. What about you? What's happening in your life that has brought you to your knees? Whatever it is, Christian, you have a shepherd, a savior, a redeemer who can do anything. Push through the crowd, reach out, and touch him by faith, and be awestruck. Paul Tripp did an interview with Desiring God, and I'm going to read a portion of it to you. They asked him, how does spiritual growth in the Christian life work dynamically? Paul Tripp replied, spiritual growth is about recapturing your awe. You could argue that Christian growth is a growth in my awe of God. Think about that. You want to grow as a Christian? Yeah? You got to grow in your awe and wonder and amazement of Jesus and what he's done for you. That's how you grow. Spiritual growth is about recapturing your awe. You could argue that Christian growth is a growth in my awe of God. The thing that dominates me more and more is the wonder of God and the wonder of my attachment to God by grace. And then they ask, trip. So let's get practical. What should a Christian be looking for in their Bible? Glory, he says. Glory. If every day I am not beckoned, wooed, if I could use this term in a positive sense, seduced, by the glory of God, I will be wooed and tempted and seduced by something else. And literally, the thing that splashes across every page of the word of God is the magnificent glory of God. The scriptures are not meant just to be a sort of logistical wisdom book that helps us to live a better life. The scriptures are meant to finally point us to that one place where our hearts can rest and be satisfied because we are exposed to wonder that is unlike any wonder that we have ever known before. These seven seemingly throwaway verses in Mark are meant to do exactly that. Again and again and again. Mark wants us to be awestruck that Jesus cares. Do you believe that today? I mean, do you really believe that Jesus cares about you and what's happening in your life right now? You really believe that? And not just in a a strict, I have to believe that because I'm a Christian kind of way. Do you really believe that he cares? That should be one big takeaway from this passage. Jesus cares. 
Jesus healed many people because he cared, because he wanted to reverse the curse. He cast out demons because it broke his heart to see people suffering this way. And he commanded them to shut up because he was not out to win a popularity contest. He cared. That's why great crowds were almost crushing him. Don't miss that hair. Read between the lines and see it. Jesus cares. Mark tells us in verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They heard about Jesus and they came to him because they knew that he cared, contrary to how the Pharisees were. The Pharisees didn't care. It was all law for them. The Pharisees were all about, get your act together. Straighten up. Be holy for once. Come on. What's wrong with you people? That was the Pharisees. And in Jesus, they see something completely different. Compassion, mercy, gentleness, kindness. Let me ask you today, what have you heard about Jesus that draws you to him? Where do you have some brokenness in your life, some need, some sin, and you've heard about Jesus and how he can help? What promise of his do you need to collide with your situation? When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, they brought their needs to him, and he welcomed them. They heard how he healed people, heard how he cast out demons. They heard how he cared. What have you heard about Jesus that you need him to be that for you this morning? Do you need a shepherd, a counselor, a mighty warrior, a father, a helper, a healer, a comforter? Jesus loves desperate people. Oh, please understand that today. Jesus welcomes desperate people. He loves to listen to desperate people. He loves helping desperate people. It's not a burden to interrupt Jesus. It's not a burden to push through the crowd in order to see Jesus and take your needs to him. What's happening here is Mark is just an invitation from Jesus for us to interrupt him and see his grace invade our lives. It's a reminder that our needs and our cares are not below him. It's a reminder that he really cares that his heart breaks when your heart is breaking. It's a reminder that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Mark is telling us that Jesus gives and gives and gives himself away for the good of others, bringing his grace to the places where it's absent, where it is lacking, Jesus is letting his calendar and his schedule get interrupted here, and it that all of that's having to take a back seat to the people in front of him, people who are most likely neglected by society. What a Savior. What a Savior Jesus is. He's spending all his time and all his energy on ordinary, broken people who are hurting and have no value in the eyes of the world. He fills up his schedule with nobodies. He does that because he's merciful and he's kind. And he's gentle, and he cares, and he forgives sinners. He forgives rebels. Be awestruck by that once again today. Be awestruck by this. He forgives us. We are sometimes bored with his word. He forgives us. We love the glory of man more than the glory of God. And he forgives us. We lose our awe. We have to come back once a week to get it again. 
He forgives us. He forgives us. He forgives you. We'll close with a quote by Ralph Davis. He said, I think even the church has lost the marvel of such forgiveness. We have, by and large, the vending machine view of forgiveness rather than the miracle view. We pop in our penitence token and out comes the assurance of pardon. We have lost the goosebumps on our souls. Having a God who passes over rebellion, Micah 7.18, should make us shudder with joy. Let's pray and then we'll shudder with joy as we sing about his blood that washes away our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're so merciful and kind. We are so distracted. So many things capture our attention. Your word bores us sometimes. It's not boring, Father. We just have an awe problem. And we will until your son comes back, but we don't want to just stay this way. So we ask you again to rekindle our affections for you. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to getting gain. And may we never tire of hearing the good news of the gospel that Jesus lived and died for sinners and came back from the dead and he's coming again one day. Rub that deep down into our pores this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.